This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Um, now, though, talking to David Mann from Refugee Legal, last week a second group of refugees who've been detained in offshore detention on Manus and Nauru left to be resettled in the US. They're the first of 54 of what could be a larger number of men to go to the US under the agreement reached with Barack Obama before he left, left office. But even as they were boarding the plane, uh, Immigration Minister Peter Dutton was undermining their refugee status, calling them Armani refugees because of their sunglasses and luggage bags, apparently. Um, David, what did you make of that? It was the most extraordinarily strange comment, very barbed commentary from the minister as they're leaving the country. I think the first thing to to say is thank goodness uh, that some people are now being resettled under the US deal with Australia. I mean, obviously, it should never have come to this. It, it, you know, Australia should should have abided by its obligations to these people who sought protection in Australia and should never have sent them to uh, be crushed in offshore detention for years on end. But thank goodness, and this is the key issue: is thank goodness they're finally being resettled to the US, where, where they'll be able to rebuild their lives in dignity. Um, for the government and for the minister to make these extraordinary comments uh, about sort of casting aspersions over their credibility, over their credibility or their genuineness uh, by you know calling them economic refugees, I think, and Amani refugees, is quite extraordinary, and it's extraordinary and and in the realms of sort of almost unbelievable. Well, Julie Bishop was kind of trying to backtrack on it. I I watched her on the ABC yesterday morning being interviewed and asked about these comments. And I I wonder, I mean, you would imagine that that the immigration minister would be, you know, relieved to start to see people leaving these islands. But but is he? I mean, how supportive is he of this deal? Well, I think it's a really good question. Um, What does the minister think? This is government policy. This is Australian government policy. It was a a significant bilateral deal done between both countries by by the heads of state, by Malcolm Turnbull and Barack Obama. Why is the minister saying things which, on one view, could well result in damaging the very deal itself, or even derailing it at worst. I mean, just ju- just in pure sort of political terms, why start casting aspersions on people who are about to be resettled to another country you've done a deal with? I'll tell you, th- there's some particularly extraordinary things about it. I mean, I'm not surprised Julie Bishop was backtracking on it, particularly because one of her singular ambitions is to get Australia a seat on the Human Rights Council. Um, now, we're, we're, we seem to be in the box seat, but, you know, every time... Australia, um, you know, embarks upon this sort of, you know, denigration of innocent people who we have obligations to, human rights obligations to as refugees. You know, you, you, you wonder, don't you? I mean, you know, where is where is the line here? And I'm well, not I suggesting mean, Donald that... Tr- Donald Trump was already reluctant, we know that, about honouring this deal, and we're still not sure how many people will be resettled in the US, do we? So exactly. it's an open question. So It's it, very up in the air. It's very I mean, it's, odd. It's, it's sort of layers and layers of uncertainty, you know, it's sort of, uh, and so it is very odd. And so I think a central question has to be, um, you know, does the, you know, why is the minister doing this? Now, at one level, I think what we're watching unfold once again is this tawdry exercise in playing to a perceived, you know, supporter base politically, domestic supporter base, you know, uh, of people who um, have particularly strong antipathy toward people seeking asylum in Australia by boat. 
but to go to these lengths, I mean, it's an old, that's an old, you know, what he was actually doing was, was, was pulling out old myths, right? Peddling old myths, you know, about, about somehow, you know, re, you know, these people being economic refugees because they, they might have worn designer clothes. I mean, we don't even know whether they did, but so what if they did? Because the basic point is, that refugee, the Refugees Convention is essentially egalitarian. It doesn't distinguish between class or social status at all. Um, you know, we, we've acted at Refugee Legal for senior political diplomats in the Middle East or, or we've, we've acted for people, you know, from other countries who have been near the top in terms of political leadership. You know, we've acted for villagers from Afghanistan. We've acted for trade unionists. We've acted for intellectuals, you know, a- academics, you know, Mechanics, it, it doesn't distinguish in that way that the common dark thread, and this is critical to sort of, you know, I think to, to restate in the context of such terrible misinformation is the common dark thread is the fear of being persecuted on, for civil or political reasons, for things that people can't or shouldn't change about themselves. But even in crass political terms, having people leave offshore detention, you would imagine is something that this government would be proud of and I mean you would you would expect so and and certainly even um, I mean you know I, I think most Australians would like to see the end of the, the the detention of people offshore for a whole range of reasons whether it be from the money spent on it right through to humanitarian compassionate grounds so you would think that that would be a celebratory moment oh absolutely I mean the policy is unsustainable and has been um, ever since it was re-established it's been unsustainable and has continued to be more and more unsustainable on on every possible ground on you know on uh, on on legal grounds uh, on financial grounds on particularly human in human terms and practical terms it is unsustainable but there's other one other critical issue here and that is to to remember that australia uh, has funded and essentially controlled the processing of people offshore i know they want to keep going on about this fiction that no no Nauru now has its own refugee determination legal system for determining whether someone's a refugee and so has png and all of this the reality is that australia has spent huge sums to set up processes there to essentially immunise Australia from, um, from you know, any legal liability in relation to those processes. So essentially it's, you know, it's Nauru and Papua New Guinea that decide who's a refugee, but it's essentially Australia that's paid for it, right? The point is these people who are getting on a plane who are being resettled to the US who've been crushed and just destroyed by the process and are now trying to rebuild their lives were found to be refugees under law, under a legal determination. So for the minister to launch into some attack of them, you know, is quite extraordinary. And the other thing, and I think this is really central to it, is to just remember again that, and and this is how sort of, uh, you know, particularly how radical it is in a way, that the commentary by the minister is that refugee resettlement, at the heart of it, it, it's about helping people to rebuild lives in dignity and peace, so it's to, to, to go to be taken to resettle to a life where you're free from abuse, not subject to it. Uh, we're speaking with David Mann, Refugee Legal, and there's lots of other issues that, um, well, dates that are important. We're going to see Manus close, and that's coming yeah. up at the end of this month. So, again, another reason why we, we need to see third, part, third country, it seems, resettlement yeah. uh, happen. Uh, so what happens to those people that are still on Manus that, 
can no longer be in the current centre? Well, the, the reality is that it remains um, one huge question, uh, uncertain question, because while the essentially what happens on 31st October is that um, that there that, that what what is closed is the old detention centre where people were held for you know held for years on end. Uh, and they're being essentially given, uh, you know, the, the impossible choice, either um, go and uh, essentially live on Manus Island or in Port Moresby. Uh, uh, so either live on Manus Island in this transit centre, which is a sort of an open, what they call an open centre, or or resettle in PNG and go and live in Port Moresby, which is completely untenable. It's it's you know, it's just not safe. And how does someone actually become part of the the economic life of the country? Well, well, Port Moresby yeah. is not multicultural Australia. It's uh, it's not the same. You know, people well, can imagine you can just blend in, but it's not like that. No, well, it's extremely unsafe, um, tragically so. But it's also not a country. The, the The economy in PNG is very much based on. On, on essentially what are called, you know, Wontok links, tribal links. And um, so just for someone to actually participate in the ordinary, you know, economy of the society in social and economic terms is a complete misnomer. But the point is that people will be given this impossible choice, either do that, so live in, continue to live in danger, uh, or uh, go back to your home country as refugees. I can tell you this, um, we are um, helping people, uh, for example, Rohingya, who have been offered money by by the Australian government to go back to Myanmar at the moment as Rohingya refugees, take some money to go back. I mean, it, it's I mean it's hard to know what to make of that. Being offering people to go back to the prospect of ethnic cleansing for a certain sum of money. Uh, that that that's the reality at the moment of people in PNG, and that all leads to the point that you you know you you were making before the third country resettlement remains the key um, goal. That That is the fundamental imperative. And the truth of it is that Australia has refused to be an option there but must become an option because there are no other countries in the world other than the US at the moment. Um, and, of course, Cambodia is, is, is impossible. It's not a resettlement country. And we, I mean, there was another deadline, 1st of October, so yesterday, um, for applications under the, the fast-track visa process. Maybe give us a really quick explanation yeah. of what that process is. But essentially, there's been tens of thousands of pro bono lawyer hours given to process applications for uh, refugees living in the community here in Australia to apply for a visa maybe tell us what's happened there yeah so look the, the, essentially this this fast so-called fast track process was introduced um introduced in 2015 um and it was a process designed by the government an inferior sort of uh, kind of process to with which took out some fundamental legal safeguards but nonetheless said to that anyone who'd arrived by boat in australia from august 2012 who'd been then and these people have been literally left in limbo in our country for years wanting to apply but not allowed to by successive governments, Labor and Liberal. Basically, this process was one designed so that they could apply under law for a protection visa. And uh, and the 1 October deadline uh, was imposed as a completely arbitrary deadline, not set in law, but the government decided after leaving people in limbo for years, our successive governments, 
decided to set these arbitrary deadlines and the last of them was 1 October. Essentially, what it means is that for thousands and thousands of people who um, uh, who desperately needed to, wanted to apply and needed to apply with these very onerous and complex um, requirements, this paperwork going to over 100 questions and a detailed written statement of English, in English of all of their fears, they were given this arbitrary deadline uh, finally to, to apply to, to apply under and um, the consequence if people miss the deadline is dire and that is that the government has said and now for anyone that's missed the deadline and there are um, some people that have missed it, uh, the government will now not allow them to apply for a protection uh, and essentially uh, people are at risk of being deported without even having their cases heard. But as I've said before and I'll say it again here, if the government tries to deport anyone without hearing their case for protection in this context, they can expect a legal challenge. So, what I mean, how many people do you know um, ha- actually manage to meet the fast-track application yeah. process? And it, mm. is it true that there's about a 1,000 people that have missed well, that? there is a great story within all of this, as arbitrary and draconian and dangerous as this process and the way that it's unfolded has been. Um, it was really three hits. It was three, three things in one hit. It was unprecedented amounts of people, so 26,000 people under this process in Australia. Uh, then the government uh, made the, you know, essentially changed the law and made the even more stringent requirements uh, apply. And the third is they then defunded almost everyone. So they'd, for, for 20 odd years, there'd been publicly funded assistance given the complexity of the requirements, right? Took away most of the funding completely defunded our organisation in relation to it. And this is the great bit of news, and, and, and it is a fantastic story, this, I think, is that we have over 550 volunteers and together with our amazing legal team of staff, the staff legal team and admin, etc., there's been this incredible, uh, incredible effort. People have just stood up, risen to the challenge, and we have literally helped thousands and thousands of people for free to get through this process. And it is a remarkable collaboration. Um, you know, it's that real sort of power of partnership of people coming together, including, just as one example, you know, 12 leading corporate law firms providing lawyers instead of them be- being sort of, you know, sitting there and billing corporate yeah, you know, corporate companies for the day, they've come over to work with us and sit one-on-one with people, you know, who need to make the application from Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, you know, Sri Lanka, you know, Rohingya from Myanmar, sat one-on-one with an interpreter under our supervision and training and have put together these, you know, really strong applications and uh, with high-quality applications and thousands of people have been helped who wouldn't have been. And so... You've got to take the wins where you can, David. Well, it's but it's so important, this stuff, is people coming together. And you don't hear about that much, that people do step up uh, and do, do lend a hand of help where it's needed. And um, before we let you go, so we have 54 people have gone to the US. We, you know, the expectation there will be more. We don't know how many, several hundred perhaps. We actually have no idea. Yeah, well, the deal is apparently, I mean, the, the, the news has been that it's up to 1,250. But that means that even if all of those, if, if did reach that, that number, uh, that that means that there there are still many that that won't benefit from it. There'll be many left over, and that's that's a you know profound concern. And yes, yeah, it's, it's an ongoing concern. And what support is there for people when they get to the US? Well, the US is the is one of the major resettlement countries in the world, and uh, has a very very uh, well developed program of resettlement. 
It essentially provides for the basic necessities of people when they arrive. They're linked in with a resettlement agency and uh, we're in touch with a number of those agencies. We um, have sort of ongoing communications with them. So there is a there is a, a policy and a program which helps people to set up their lives. But the truth of it is also that, uh, and this, yeah, it's, it, it is a great option for people because it is one of the major resettlement countries in the world. But um, rebuilding a, a life after after such, um, you know, such damage um, and such, you know, degradation really is, is not an easy thing. And, it, you know, so people will need a lot of support, but there is support provided. Thank you so much for coming into Triple R. It's always great to have you on. Uh, David Mann from Refugee Legal and lots of uh, well, good news in there as well as really concerning uh, news around the, um, the prospects for those still living in offshore detention and also here in the community in Australia. And uh, all the best for your work continuing. And uh, I think Thanks a lot of people uh, will be heading out to the um, Bring Them Here rallies happening over the weekend. And I suppose I should sneak in one last quick question. Is that likely to ever happen? Well, I, I just think we've got to keep got to keep putting putting the case. We've got to, and I, I just think that one one thing is, I, I don't know the answer, but I do know that change is inevitable. Right? That's what history shows, and it's and and what affects change is public and political will. So every single person who is concerned can do something and exercise their their will. And use their voice. And it's so critical here because we know change will happen. That's what history tells us. But we also know that change can be good or bad or indifferent in between. And what, what determines that is not, is not how, how strong the wind blows or how hard the rain falls, right? But our own will, our political voices combined. Thanks, David. Uh, not having a job is hard at any age, but women over the age of 50 face particular challenges when they're on no or low wages, which is leading to them fast becoming one of the most vulnerable groups in the community. A new program has kicked off in Melbourne to expand the options for old women by helping them set up micro enterprises. It's called Money for Jam and it's an initiative of Per Capita. And Emma Dawson has come in many times this year and you, gee, are into a lot of things, Emma. <laughs> Welcome. We like to keep it interesting. Well, is it? a new phenomenon, um, older women struggling financially? It's not a new phenomenon, but it's uh, certainly something that seems to be on the increase in our society. So we know that women over 55, for example, are the fastest growing group of people in Australia that are homeless. Um, they're often not what people think of the typical, uh, stereotypical perhaps homeless person. They're not um, sleeping on the street, but they are often couch surfing. A lot of them are sleeping in their cars. Uh, and even those that aren't homeless are finding themselves in increasingly precarious financial situations. And what options are there? What support is out there for this group? Um, well, it's difficult uh, for a lot of these women because they often have caring responsibilities. So they've either got uh, teenage children, older children, or sometimes even still school-aged children in their 50s, uh, and uh, or elderly parents or other family members that need caring for. Um, some of them may have had chronic health conditions or, um, or maybe fleeing family violence. And so getting back into a typical nine-to-five job is even harder for them than it is for a lot of uh, other people in our society. Um, and we know as well that there is uh, a dearth of positions that are available to suit those lifestyles. So, uh, But at the same time, a lot of these women have a lot of initiative, but there aren't a lot of programs out there that suit them in terms of being able to start up doing their own things. So we hear a lot today about entrepreneurs and, you know, the, the infamous word mumpreneurs um, who can start their own business when they 
they can't find a job. But for women uh, in these situations where they uh, feel very vulnerable, they don't have any capital, anybody else to rely on, um, they may not have a lot of time to devote to it, then a lot of the programs out there, like, for example, the new Enterprise Incentive Scheme, um, which is delivered through the federal government, uh, is really aimed at people that are able to put a lot of time and a lot of um, resources and, and maybe even some capital into starting a business. And that's not the case for the women we're dealing with. And and many of these women, especially maybe not right at 50, but older than 50, were often locked out of super schemes yeah. and things like this. So it seems a bit rich then, doesn't it, <laughs> that we've also got a sort of age discrimination That's, happening yeah, in the workforce and, as well? And we think there is, some, you know, some evidence of age discrimination. We know we know that. That's certainly self-reported by a lot of these people, that they feel that they're not getting considered for jobs because they're older or because they can't, um, you know, give a full-time nine-to-five commitment. But you're right, they don't have a lot of super and this is a group that um, were working before super became compulsory, have taken time out of the workforce. Last time I was here, we were talking about our women's super report uh, that found that women are retiring with around half the superannuation of men and the average super balance for a woman retiring today is $40,000. That's not going to keep them going very long. No, I'm speaking with Emma Dawson from Per Capita and Money for Jam is a new program they've got um, which is there to help women over the age of 50 set up micro-enterprises. So tell us about the the program because you it sort of kicked off last year. You started with a small number of people, about 13, baker's dozen um, (laughs) of, of women and so it's been successful enough now to expand to 80 maybe tell us how it's been sure set up. Uh, so we we have a within per capita uh, a center for applied policy and positive aging and through that program um we kicked off money for jam last year as you said with about 13 women and we did a co-design process a human-centered design process which is where we knew there was a problem facing these women uh, but rather than go to them with some you know top-down solutions we sat down with them and helped uh, work through a process that allowed them to help us design the program and how it would look. So we really listened to what their needs were to understand the barriers they were facing and what they wanted to achieve. And that allowed us to design the model that we called Money for Jam. Um, and it's a bit of a play on the way people usually understand Money for Jam, meaning money for not much at all. Yeah, I know. Uh, for us, it was... It <laughs> sounded good to me. Yeah, it sounds nice for all of us. doesn't happen very often. Um, one of the women involved in that co-design model was uh, said to us, or in one of our early focus groups actually, um, said she had started uh, doing a bit of gardening in her local area and it wasn't a huge income for her but it was the difference between having enough money to put jam on her toast rather than just butter. So that's where we came up with the name. Um, And having worked through that model, we published the outcomes of that in a report and how the model would work. And we've now been very generously funded by Gandel Philanthropy and um, the uh, Equity Trustees, the Reichstein Foundation, Lord Mayor's Charitable Trust Trust and the Melbourne Women's Fund. Um, Gandel and Equity being the primary funders to roll out a pilot um, and we're looking at about 80 to 100 women taking part in that pilot. We've got two delivery partners fitted for work and women's housing uh, and with the women's housing group we're actually specifically working on a way of delivering this to women that are at risk of homelessness and already in temporary accommodation. So. And so I mean part of the, the report was you know highlighted that women with with an interest, a photography mm. interest or, or something along those lines um, might benefit from this 
kind of scheme. What if someone doesn't have a hobby, Emma? It's, I mean, can it still help? Or do they, I mean, yeah. can they be helped to, to, to develop something that could start earning them some cash? Yeah, so we, we're particularly um, keen to find a whole range of different women to participate in this, and we're, we're doing so at the moment. Um, women that do already have an idea and some that have no idea but know that they want a little bit of financial independence. So the early part of the program really does look at at sitting down with people and saying, you know, what are your interests? What might you have done in the past? Um, what might you have heard of that you think could be interesting for you? And uncovering skills and abilities that they may not realise they even have. And working together in a group so that they're working with people um, that are similar to them and that have similar experiences and they feel supported in that way. And it's as much about building that confidence and capability and those networks of support. Um, there's a much stronger focus on that side of things than in the more traditional, you know, let's write a business plan and work out how you're going to get a bank loan kind of approach that, that's seen as quite typical in the business And community. so the sort of success measures might be different depending on who it is. That's right, that's right. So different outcomes for different people. So as you mentioned, there'll be people that um, feel like, I want to do a digital photography business or um, we have uh, one participant that's going to start a pet care business, um, another one that's looking uh, at, at helping people similar to her um, with IT skills and how to use the internet. Um, but then there are others that might say, look, I don't, I don't really know. Um, I just know I want to do something for myself. And so the outcome for them might be just that they've identified some skills and uh, they may not be as far along on the journey at the end as some of the other women that have come in with an idea. We'll be um, working on uh, making sure that we track all that, document all that, so that we see the different outcomes for different people and how um, the program might need to be tailored to provide different levels of support. So if this sounds attractive to somebody, can they still get involved or is it, are you sort of already set with your, your participants? Um, we're not completely set. We're well on the way. So the classes at Fitted for Work, which is a class classroom-based um, delivery of the program, start later this month. Um, the women's housing side of things um, will take a little bit longer. We're actually developing an app for that cohort because um, we know actually it seems counterintuitive but a lot of the women that are finding themselves in insecure housing, the one thing that they do have to connect is, is a mobile phone. Um, but if they go to, if people are interested, they can um, go to the per capita website and find out a bit more and get in touch with our the manager of our program, Miffin Jordan. Um, but yeah, we're, we're close to kicking off, but we hope this won't be the end of the program. It's actually been very well supported and well received. So our intention following the pilot is to um, really come up with a model that can be scaled at for different for delivery in different areas of the of the state and ultimately the country. Now, per capita is a policy think tank, so I have to ask you about the policy implications of this because I imagine you're not doing it just to run a program. No, that's right. Um, so what are you trying to, to model? And I suppose are these the kinds of programs you're hoping uh, at the sort of state and federal level or even at the local government yeah. level we might see more of? Exactly right, all three. So we're already talking about the program to the Victorian Local Government Association and the state government. Um, we're talking to departments in the state government about women's microenterprise. We're not the only program out there like this. So the Brotherhood of St Lawrence do a very um, successful established program of microenterprise with uh, refugee and newly arrived immigrant women called Stepping Stones. Um, our focus is a little different because we're specifically targeting older women that are living a precarious financial existence and often are, um, in insecure housing. Um, but yeah, we're certainly, as you said, we're a think tank. So um, the Centre for Applied Policy and Positive Development is intended to 
road test ideas that come out of our research. So when we did the um, blueprint, blueprint for positive ageing and looked at the adequacy of the age pension, which was one of our reports last year, um, the focus groups in that uh, process was really what revealed to us this problem. So then we, we say, OK, what can we do in the applied policy sense? We go away and come up with a, a model and a program. We then pilot that. But then that feeds back into our policy work so that we can go to government and say there is a group here that aren't being assisted by the traditional support mechanisms that you have through either Centrelink or, or different state government programs. Um, we think this is something that will work and, hey, we've already done a pilot of yeah. it and here's some evidence. And, I mean, the, the concept of micro-enterprises, I suppose, well, I first think of in developing countries where mm. women have been identified as really the difference yes. between a family sinking or swimming and um, empowering women to earn an income, that sort of thing has made a big difference. Do you look to those kinds of success models or is it quite different when we run one social enterprise type um, micro-enterprises in Australia? We certainly, uh, the model was informed by by the experience of micro-enterprise overseas and how it can operate um, and certainly we knew from that evidence that it was something that worked quite well for women because women in developing countries have the same caring responsibilities uh, as women in developed countries. Uh, you know, the burden of housework and childcare falls disproportionately on women wherever they are, it seems. Um, so that evidence certainly helped us develop the model. Um, but there are different pressures and different um, issues facing women in our society and we like to think that that we have great systems set up and you know we do have a very strong social safety net in Australia it's very targeted but as I said earlier a lot of the programs about developing self-reliance and small business and sole trader businesses uh, are focused on a much more traditional um, full-time breadwinner model or you know or for people that are able to devote a lot of time and energy to their business and it becomes the number one thing in their life and we recognize that this is going to be something that sits alongside all those other responsibilities so it's about tailoring it for the Australian situation yeah well um, well done and um, if you do want to get involved or find out more uh, uh, money for jam is um, a program coming out of per capita and Emma Dawson is the executive director over there and thanks Emma I'm sure we'll have you back on triple I really soon thanks so much always good to be here uh, right now talking to Cam Walker though friends at the earth and the federal government has a gas problem it seems everyone is to blame for it except for themselves in the past week, uh, we've heard the government um, criticise AGL again for posts and they want them to postpone the closure of the Liddell coal fire power plant in New South Wales. They've put the hard word on the Victorian government and other states with coal seam gas moratoriums. They want them to exploit their resources or risk losing out on GST distribution and they've stopped short of intervening in the international gas export market. And on the face of it, it appears to be a bizarre approach to energy planning, but to speak more about it, Cam Walker joins us. And uh, Cam, I, that's just a really short summary of what's going on. Um, I wonder what you think the aim might be. It is remarkable times that we live in, really. And you're right, they're just blaming everyone but themselves. So the problem is all of us are facing problems with our gas and electricity bills. Um, a big part of that is the price gouging by the large retailers. But in terms of gas, a really big problem is that consistent federal governments have pursued this agenda of establishing an export liquid natural gas LNG industry. It's now selling into the Asian market, into the international market, which means we as domestic consumers 
consumers are competing in effect uh, with the international market and that's one of the key reasons the prices are going up. So as you said in the intro, the, this, the government is blaming everyone but themselves but really this is a problem that the government has caused. They need to uh, resolve it by intervening in the export market whether they do a reserve policy or however they want to do it really that's up to them but they need to stop blaming other people for a problem that they have effectively caused and it's interesting because as you're saying there that re- energy retailers aren't popular uh but agl uh seems to be kind of the good guys in a weird way with their approach to uh their asset in liddell coal fire power station that's strange too yeah, so they've said they're getting out of coal, which is great. They're a little bit stuck in the past, we would say, in that they're um, committed to continuing to use gas. So there's this old argument that gas is a transition fuel, so it will see us, it will soften the transition as we go from our old reliance on oil, coal and gas um, into re- reliance on renewables. So it's actually an old argument. The quicker we get out of gas, the better, not only for economic reasons, but obviously for climate change reasons. So they, they're kind of dragging the chain, they're doing further investment in gas but their commitment to get out of coal and reduce their emissions is to be welcomed and you know they really are showing leadership amongst the big uh what they call generation retailers you know the the companies that not only sell uh to energy to homes but also produce the energy in the first instance so they are definitely leaders in that realm and it's interesting because a lot of people um same with the intervention in the international gas market there's you know pressure from Labor to, to pull that trigger that they can intervene. Uh, but a lot of people are saying they wish government was just back in energy and be easier if it was nationalised again. But the conduct of the federal government versus AGL maybe supports a an open market for energy. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's really complex. I think the best energy is locally owned energy and community owned energy, such as Hepburn Wind up at Dalesford. Um, but the world we live in, it is complex. There are going to be global players and, you know, we have to make sure that they're working in the public's interest rather than just the profit imperative. And I I think, um, I mean, just staying with with the market, uh, will this kind of, I I suppose, the approach that the federal government is using, particularly with heavying the Victorian government and also the New South Wales and Northern Territory governments, which have uh, moratoriums in place for coal seam gas mining? In Victoria, I understand it's bipartisan policy to uh, have a moratorium on on this kind of unconventional gas mining. Do you think uh, the federal government will... Uh, withhold GST and force states to explore their um, resources and and actually exploit them? There's some pretty crazy ideas out there. Um, Tony Abbott floated the idea of using the military to coerce the states to increase mining exploration. Uh, That's obviously out on the lunar right, but this idea of changing the formula for GST payments back to the states would be very, very dangerous, would be strongly opposed by the community because it would be punishing us for making a good land management decision that protects our farmland and protects our climate. And I think, I mean, a lot of these uh, regional communities have fought really hard to have moratoriums and certainly in New South Wales they've had... I suppose proposals to even mine gas underneath outer suburbs and things like this. So you can't imagine that flying, even though uh, I think it was Corman in the government that, that floated this idea. 
Yes, indeed. And if you look at it now, Victoria, New South Wales, parts of WA, Tasmania, the Northern Territory, all have various forms of permanent or temporary ban. So they're effectively picking a fight with well over half of the Australian population if they tried to go with this model. So it would just be a really stupid thing to do politically. It's not going to fly and they need to just get on with solving the national problem, which is essentially about export of gas. And we haven't been really hearing that name Finkel for a little while, but we're still waiting for the federal government to respond to that report. Do you think that will still happen this year, Cam? Oh, it's very hard to tell. There's an ongoing debate around whether we're going to have a clean energy target, a CET, and this has really triggered the, the current phase in the culture war that we're seeing, the nationals, for instance, saying we need to cut subsidies for renewables, uh, some in the federal government just saying we need more coal, we've got to keep the existing coal generation power stations open for longer, that type of thing. So it's uh, very much a culture war that's occurring within the coalition and the rest of us who are just watching on bemused and angry um, are, are basically the ones who will suffer as a result of this inaction. The inaction is the ideological argument that's happening within the coalition. Do the moderates win or do the extremists win? And that's really what this is about. We're seeing it play out in the same-sex marriage uh, debate. You know, it's played out in many, many ways in the history wars and all the rest of it. The problem is the Australian economy and the Australian people are being held, held to ransom in this argument, in this internal argument within the coalition. It's really interesting. Cam Walker's with us with Friends of the Earth and we're talking about the federal government and its uh, approach to energy. Um, We're still waiting for a a federal government policy on energy, which... uh, we're not sure whether the current um, decisions and announcements will lead to that or not. But, what, I mean, there are some interesting voices that have come out and it's not often that you hear from the Australian energy market um, operator, but uh, Audrey Zebelman, who's in that role, she's from New York, she's got a lot of experience. Uh, she seems to be able to communicate to the public, Cam, and she. I, I saw a public lecture with her and she's saying that AEMO is looking at demand management and a whole range of different approaches to uh, saving power and, I suppose, avoiding those kind of high summer peaks. Uh, are you hopeful that a different approach might be able to be approached by AEMO to get around some of the confusion at the federal level? Absolutely. We need to remember we have a really integrated national electricity market. It's managed incredibly well uh, in terms of different input, coal and gas, renewables, solar, hydro and all the rest of it. It's very well managed and a way you can tweak it is to make sure you minimise your energy use in peak low times, those really hot times or really cold times Uh, and if you can enact energy efficiency as an across-the-board measure. That's a really, really good start. Um, And also, the debate has moved on very quickly. We now know that renewables can produce baseload energy. We have that amazing battery storage project that's underway at present in South Australia through the initiative of Elon Musk, the uh, entrepreneur. Um, The world has shifted very quickly, and I think AEMO and the other network managers are really catching up with that debate and realising... The 21st century is going to be very, very different from the 20th century in that we're going to have multiple sources of energy coming in from multiple points within the national grid and our energy efficiency options have improved considerably. So in terms of what we produce, it can be a lot greener and we can use a lot less because our efficiency 
standards can become a lot higher. And, uh, I mean, look, Elon Musk really does capture the imagination. I think um, he was at a party celebrating the 100-megawatt lithium-ion battery halfway point, I think it was, over the weekend, and he joked that the implementation of that battery is shorter than a kitchen reno. um, really says a lot doesn't it about how uh, you know what we now call dispatchable power how it actually can be integrated relatively quickly yes indeed the the, the world is changing so quickly with the technology around energy and and the battery storage is indicative of that the other debate we're having is around pumped storage for hydro where when you're not using electricity generally in the grid you can pump water back up into dams and that's in effect, energy in the bank, money in the bank to use later on. So there's all this exciting stuff that's happening. The world has really changed. Unfortunately, the federal coalition is kind of stuck in some version of the 1950s when it comes to energy policy. And, um, I mean, before I let you go, there is a, a Stop Adani rally again this weekend. Um, this campaign has been running for a very long time. Um, just briefly, what is actually happening with that mine? Where is it at in the in the process for approval? Well, it's still sitting there. Um, there's still been no final, final approvals in terms of the federal financial support that the mine will need to proceed. Um, so the community is working very hard to highlight the fact that they really don't support it. And there is going to be national action, a day of actions around the country this Saturday. And if people are interested, there will be an event in Melbourne and, and in regional centres across the state. You just need to do a web search for Stop Adani Day of Action and it will come up very quickly. Cam Walker, thank you so much and um, we'll catch you again in a month's time here on Triple R. Enjoy the mountains. Thanks, Kalia. Bye. Bye. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.